Chapters 8 and 9 of Problems in American Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Williamson. Chapter 8 Exchanging the Products of Industry. 74 relation of the division of labor to exchange in the self-sufficing stage that existed in industry a few hundred years ago there was generally little necessity for the exchange of products each family produced most of the commodities which it needed and depended relatively little upon the products of persons outside the family circle but the complex division of labor which developed out of the industrial revolution has made the exchange of products increasingly important today the typical workman concentrates upon one particular kind of work and is content to exchange a share of his earnings for the numerous goods and services which he cannot supply for himself Exchange thus increases the total output of the community or nation by permitting individuals to specialize in those commodities which they can produce most effectively. 75. Relation of transportation and communication to exchange. Exchange is largely dependent upon transportation and communication. In the United States, for example, not only do the individuals of a particular community specialize in various types of work, but the different sections of the country are devoted to the production of those commodities for which they are best suited. Thus, it is largely true that New England is best suited to manufacturing, the South to the growing of cotton, and certain parts of the West to the production of lumber and foodstuffs. The suitability of a region to a particular class of products is due partly to location, partly to the nature of the soil and climate, and partly to the inclination and training of the people. But whatever its causes, this territorial division of labor could not be carried out without an efficient system of transportation and communication. Communication by mail, telephone, and telegraph is necessary to allow producers and consumers in different parts of the country to keep in touch with one another. Transportation by land and water is necessary if the surplus products of one section are to be exchanged for the surplus products of other sections. 76. Types of Coordinators Those who perform the work of coordination in industry are commonly referred to indiscriminately as businessmen, middlemen, or entrepreneurs. Footnote. The term entrepreneur is awkward and little known, but no more satisfactory term is available. End of footnote. The meaning of these three terms is distinguished with difficulty, but to avoid confusion later on, the essential character of each should be pointed out here. The term businessman is very wide and is commonly inclusive of all who actively engage in any sort of business. The primary function of the middleman is to act as a connecting link between various industrial enterprises. The entrepreneur, on the other hand, is primarily an individual who coordinates land, labor, and capital with the intention of initiating and conducting a business enterprise. Insofar as he acts as a connecting link between other industrial agents, the entrepreneur is a middleman 
but the middleman is usually thought of as an individual who connects up existing businesses rather than initiating a new enterprise to the functions of the entrepreneur we shall return in the next chapter here it is the middleman proper who is our chief concern 77 importance of the middleman the chief stages of shoe manufacture may serve to illustrate the great importance of the middleman in exchange the middleman anticipating a demand for beef and hides connects the cattle grower with the livestock market still later it is a middleman who offers rawhides to the tanner and who sees that the wholesale leather merchant comes into business contact with the tanner the banker or broker who connects the entrepreneur with the money with which to set up a shoe factory may be called a middleman as may the individual who aids the entrepreneur in getting the required amounts of land and labor with which to start manufacturing when under the direction of the entrepreneur the shoe has been manufactured it is often a middleman who connects the shoe wholesaler with the finished product the jobber who buys large quantities of shoes from the wholesaler and sells them to the retailer in small lots is a middleman the advertising man whose description and pictorial representation of the shoe causes the consumer to buy it of the retailer is also a middleman 78 not all middlemen are socially necessary by coordinating the work of these various individuals many of whom themselves are middlemen the middlemen whom we have been describing allow the community to secure the full benefit of the division of labor and of exchange where there exist just enough middlemen to coordinate with maximum efficiency the various industrial agents of a community the community gains when on the other hand there are more middlemen at work than are really needed to perform the work of industrial coordination the community loses this loss is a double one first the working energy of the superfluous middlemen is wasted or at least is applied uneconomically second middlemen are paid directly or indirectly out of the product which they handle so that the handling of a commodity by an unnecessarily large number of middlemen means higher prices for the ultimate consumers of that commodity 79 barter we have seen what the middleman does it remains to point out how or by means of what mechanism he performs his functions when savages and civilized peoples living under primitive conditions wish to exchange their surplus goods they generally resort to barter i e they exchange one commodity directly for another where the division of labor has been so little developed that the goods to be exchanged are relatively few this may work very well but in modern industry barter would be inexpedient if not impossible the farmer who had a surplus of cattle and desired a piano might have great difficulty in finding a man who had a surplus piano and who also desired cattle even though the farmer liked the piano in question and even though the owner of the piano were pleased with the farmer's cattle it might be impossible to measure the value of the piano in units of cattle eighty nature and function of money to facilitate exchange civilized peoples make an extensive use of money money may be defined as anything that passes freely from hand to hand as a medium of exchange 
Footnote. The terms money and capital are often used interchangeably. Strictly speaking, however, money is a form of capital. Moreover, it is only one form of capital. End of footnote. In modern times, gold, silver, nickel, and copper coins have been the most familiar forms, though paper currency is also an important form of money. There is nothing mysterious about money. It is simply a means of facilitating exchange by saving time and guaranteeing accuracy in measuring the relative values of commodities. Let us see how money actually aids in the exchange, say, of cattle and pianos. The farmer disposes of his cattle to a middleman, receiving in return money, the authenticity of which is guaranteed by the government stamp upon its face. There is no difficulty in making change, for money can be so minutely divided as to measure the value of an article rather exactly. The farmer does not fear that he could not use the money received for the cattle, for money is generally accepted in exchange for any commodity. The farmer now offers the money to the piano owner, who is probably a middleman. Again, the fact that money is finely divisible allows an accurate money measure of the value of the piano. The owner of the piano, if he is satisfied with the amount of money offered, does not hesitate to accept the farmer's money, since he, too, realizes that he can use the money to purchase the things that he in turn desires. 81. Value and Price We have used the term value several times as part of our preparation for the study of the great problem of industrial reform we must understand precisely what is meant by the term suppose for the sake of clearness that we speak of a market as a definite place where goods are bought and sold individuals take or send their surplus products to the market for sale individuals desiring to buy commodities likewise resort to the market in the market commodities are said to have value that is to say, they have power in exchange. The power of a commodity in exchange is measured in money, and the amount of money for which a commodity will exchange is called its price. Price is thus a measure, in terms of money, of the value of a commodity. The value of a commodity in the market is dependent, partly upon its utility, or want-satisfying power, and partly upon its scarcity. In other words, the value of a commodity depends partly upon the intensity with which it is desired by persons able and willing to purchase it, and partly upon its available supply. Price is set as the result of the interaction of forces of supply and demand, this interaction commonly taking the form of a bargaining process between prospective sellers and prospective buyers. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9. Distributing the Income of Industry. 82. The Problem Prior to the Industrial Revolution. The distribution of industrial income has to do with dividing the products of industry, or the money which re represents those products, among the various individuals who have aided in their creation. The problem of distribution has existed ever since men first combined for purposes of production, but until the period of the Industrial Revolution, the question was relatively unimportant. When, 300 years ago, most necessities were produced within the family circle, 
There was little or no question as to whether or not individuals outside the family ought to be rewarded for having helped in the production of those commodities. If one member of the family made an entire pair of shoes, for example, he was clearly entitled to those shoes, at least so far as economic principles are concerned. Even where different members of the family combined to produce a pair of shoes or an article of clothing, the small number of persons involved, as well as the close identity of interests among the family members, kept the problem of distribution from becoming a serious one. 83. Effect of the Industrial Revolution upon the Problem The Industrial Revolution greatly increased the importance of the problem of distribution. Indeed, the growth of the factory system and the greater and greater complexity of the division of labor have made the distribution of industrial income the basic problem in our economic and social life. Many commodities are still produced by individuals working independently or by the joint efforts of members of a family. But the vast majority of commodities are now produced by the joint efforts of numerous individuals who are not bound together by family ties. The production of a factory-made shoe, for example, involves large numbers of people, including the cattle grower, the transportation agent, the tanner, numerous laborers, the individuals who supply land and capital to the entrepreneur, and the entrepreneur who conducts the enterprise. The welfare of millions of people is involved in the distribution of industrial income among individuals who cooperate in such enterprises as this. 84. Difficulty of the Problem Under modern industrial conditions, most commodities are produced by the combined efforts of large numbers of people. All these people help along the productive process, though in different ways and to a varying degree. Since all help, all are entitled to payment. But this is less simple than it sounds. How shall we determine how much each one helps? And, how shall we decide how much each one is to receive? At the outset of this discussion, we can be sure of at least one fact, i.e., that since all the individuals involved in a given enterprise must be paid out of the value of the finished product, the combined sums received by them cannot long exceed the total value of that product. Unfortunately, this fact is often overlooked. Many of the individuals who aid in production often become so intent upon securing their share that they are over ready to explain their contribution to the product, but loathe to give due credit to those who have cooperated with them. It is the belief that some individuals receive too little of the joint income of industry, while other individuals receive too large a share, which has given rise to the charge of injustice in the distribution of wealth. 85. Significance of the Entrepreneur in Distribution For the sake of clearness, let us continue to illustrate the nature of distribution by reference to the shoe industry, carried on under conditions which are not unduly complicated. The individual having control of the actual manufacture of the shoes is the entrepreneur. It is he who, in anticipation of a demand for shoes, has initiated the enterprise. Suppose, for the sake of simplicity, that the entrepreneur has secured land from the landowner, capital from the capitalist, and labor from the workman. Protected in a legitimate enterprise by the government, 
he has set himself up as a manufacturer of shoes. Since he is in control of the enterprise, it is he who pays the landowner, the capitalist, and the laborers for their respective contributions toward the finished shoes. The amounts received by the individuals cooperating with the entrepreneur are not, however, arbitrarily determined. The entrepreneur must bow to economic law and give these individuals what free competition in industry sets as a proper reward for their respective services. Let us examine into this conformity to economic law. 86. The landowner receives rent. The landowner is rewarded because he extends the use of land to the entrepreneur. A landowner could not be expected to and will not allow the entrepreneur free use of this land. The landowner must therefore be paid for the use of the land. The entrepreneur, on the other hand, is able and willing to pay for the use of the land because upon it he expects to build a factory in which to manufacture shoes. He therefore pays the landowner an amount of money called rent. The amount of rent paid for a piece of land depends partly upon how much the entrepreneur wants the land and partly upon the available supply of land of the type wanted. This is equivalent to saying that rent is determined by the interaction of two forces of supply and demand. 87. The capitalist receives interest. Besides land, the entrepreneur needs machinery, office equipment, raw materials, the services of laborers, and numerous other aids in production. Let us assume that the entrepreneur borrows of a capitalist the money required to procure these necessities. The entrepreneur can afford to pay interest for the use of this money, since, with the aid of the goods and services which it will buy, he can produce more shoes than would otherwise be possible. Not only can he afford to pay interest, but he is obliged to pay it, since otherwise he could not secure the required loan. Though some people tend carelessly to overlook this fact, saving and abstinence are necessary to the accumulation of money. The individual who has money, therefore, cannot be expected to allow the entrepreneur to use it without payment, especially not when, as we have just seen, the entrepreneur can acquire wealth by the use of the goods and services which that money will buy. The amount of interest which the capitalist receives for the use of his money will depend, as will rent, upon the law of supply and demand. If there is a large amount of funds available for investment, and, at the same time, few borrowers, then a given capitalist must be content to accept a relatively low rate of interest, lest his refusal cause the entrepreneur to close a bargain with a competing capitalist. If, on the other hand, available funds are scarce and entrepreneurs are greatly in need of money, then capitalists are at an advantage and entrepreneurs must offer relatively high rates of interest. 88. The laborers receive wages. The payment which the laborers receive for their part in the production of the shoes is called wages. Since the laborers help in shoe manufacture, the employer can afford to pay them. Not only can he afford to pay them, but he must pay them. Otherwise, the laborers would not work for this particular entrepreneur, but in a freely competitive market would offer their services to a competing employer. Wages, like rent and interest, depend upon the conditions of supply and demand. 
If, in comparison with other aids in production, the services of laborers are wanted badly, and if, at the same time, there is a scarcity of the desired type of labor, then wages will be high. If, on the other hand, there is an oversupply of laborers, and also a small demand for that type of labor, then wages will tend to be low. 89. The government receives taxes. In addition to paying the landowner, the capitalist, and the laborers for their share in producing the shoes, the entrepreneur must pay taxes to the government. These taxes may be considered as payment for that maintenance of law and order without which the economical manufacture of shoes would be impossible. The share which goes to the government is determined by a unique method. The government does not try to secure as large a share of the product as possible, but strives, on the contrary, to exact as little as possible and still meet its expenses. The subject of taxation requires special treatment and does not, therefore, call for further mention in this chapter. 90. The entrepreneur receives profits. That share of the income derived from the sale of the shoes which goes to the entrepreneur is called profits. It is only fair that the entrepreneur receive some reward, for it is he who conceived the idea of shoe manufacture and then carried out the project. Without his efforts, the landowner, the capitalist, and the laborers would not have combined in this enterprise, with the result that there would have been fewer shoes in the community. Fewer shoes would probably mean more expensive shoes, and not only does the entrepreneur deserve some reward for thus adding to the well-being of the community, but if he did not receive that reward, he would not go to the trouble of initiating and maintaining a shoe manufacturing establishment. The share going to the entrepreneur is determined less exactly than is the share of the landowner, the capitalist, and the laborers. In dividing up the income of the business, the shoe manufacturer must, in an important sense, put himself last. Before there are finished shoes to sell, he must pay the landowner rent, the capitalist interest, and the laborer's wages. Before he is allowed to count out his own share, he must also pay taxes to the government, pay insurance on his plant, and set aside an amount sufficient to keep his buildings and machinery in repair. He cannot evade the payment of rent, interest, or wages on the plea that these payments will diminish his profits. He is contracted to pay the landlord, the capitalist, and the laborers, and he must fulfill that contract. If, after paying all of his expenses, there is anything left, the entrepreneur retains it as profits. Sometimes this share is very large. Sometimes it is so small as to force the entrepreneur out of business. In any case, the chief risks and responsibilities of the whole enterprise are concentrated upon the entrepreneur rather than upon the landowner, the capitalist, or the laborers. 91. The determinants of each share. To sum up, the share of the joint industrial income going respectively to the landowner, the capitalist, and the laborers is determined by the interaction of the forces of supply and demand, operating under conditions of free competition. The entrepreneur's demand for land, labor, or capital will depend upon whether or not he sees an opportunity, under a particular set of circumstances, to add to his product by the employment of each or all of these factors. 
Where the supply of laborers is large, relatively to demand, the promised product of any one laborer is likely to be relatively small, and in this case the entrepreneur or employer will be unwilling or even unable to offer a particular laborer high wages. Under these circumstances, the competition of the many laborers for the few jobs will accordingly bring about lower wages. Where, on the other hand, the supply of laborers is small relatively to demand, the chances that a particular laborer will be able to add to the product are relatively great, and the competition of employers for laborers will result in higher wages. The same reasoning is applicable to rent and interest. The automatic operation of the law of supply and demand, functioning in a freely competitive market, determines the share which go to land, labor, and capital. The share going to the individual entrepreneur is, as has already been pointed out, a residual share, i.e., what is left over. End of chapter 9